Again, it's uh, good to see you guys. The question that uh, the question I wanted to lead with today is really the question that, that that's going on here in this text. It's why in the world should Jesus be first place in everything? It's a very simple question. It's the it's the very it's this is the question like why should Jesus be first in my life? I've got a lot of different options for different things. I've got a lot of different things that that that, that, that vie for my attention. Uh, I've got a lot of different options, and I've got a lot of things to entertain me, to keep me busy, uh, to give my affections, to give my purpose to. I've got a lot of different stuff, a lot of different theologies, a lot of different philosophies I could be pulling from. So why in the world should Jesus be first in my life? It's the question that I had to wrestle with as a 15-year-old. Uh, coming into this time in youth group, my sophomore year in high school, going to that spring break youth re- group retreat, I was already a believer at that point in time, but the question that the speaker uh, uh, threw at us that after that evening as we were out at Enchanted Rock uh, doing this little retreat thing, it was just very simply, why should Jesus be first in your life? Because the reality is that, there's a, that, that we are very, very similar to the Colossians. We are like the people that, that say, hey, I know that Jesus probably should be first. I know that he should be a priority. I know that that's the right answer to give. We probably have a hard time giving a good reason for why that should be the case. And so that's what I want to deal with a little bit today. As we get into this book, I think it's, a, it's, it's important that we uh, align a little bit with the people that are there in Colossae. Uh, we're very similar to them in a lot of different ways. Uh, much like Dallas, you're going to see that Colossae, uh, the audience that he's writing to, is a very, very wealthy city. Uh, if you see it on the map, it's going to be located right there, kind of the southwestern part of uh, Turk, modern-day Turkey. If you remember, um, it's actually right next door to Laodicea. And so you probably can't see that very well on the map, but uh, if you remember from our series about a year ago, we talked a little bit about the church in Laodicea. Anyone remember what the big problem was in Laodicea? It was Revelation chapter 3, verse 15. Uh, We talked about this a little bit, but uh, lukewarm. Yeah, you know this verse. This is the famous verse in Revelation 3.15, the one we all want to avoid, the, all, the one that's easy to remember. But essentially he says this. He says, speaking to the church in Laodicea, next door neighbors to Colossae, and he says, I know your deeds, church. I know your deeds. I know who you actually are, not what you profess. I know your deeds. And he says, you're neither hot nor you're cold. I wish you were either one or the other because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold. And because you're not doing the things that you're supposed to be doing as a church body, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth, he says. And so it's a very, very harsh rebuke. And anyone remember why that they're actually lukewarm in their affection for God? He says it in verse 17. He simply says this. He says, you guys say this. You say, I'm rich. I have acquired wealth and I have need of absolutely nothing. Church, that's the church. That, that's who Colossae is. They're a very wealthy city, strong textile industry. There's a lot of health and wellness culture going on there, which means that there's a lot of affluence. There's a lot of things. And it's actually come alongside a very similar way to Laodicea, where they've kind of come up to this place and say, you know what? I really don't have a need of a thing. And so that's one of the major things there. We, we know this tension when you have options, you have things, opportunity. You have entertainment, you have comfort, you have all of these different things that are kind of, that are all fighting for your attention and fighting for, you, for your time, uh, you know how difficult it is to keep him first. And so that's one of the main things that they're going to be dealing with here in this text. The other one is that they are uh, a very, uh, that they're influenced by Roman culture and they're influenced largely by a pluralistic Roman culture. And so... Um, what that means is their religious landscape, it was polytheistic in nature, meaning they had thousands of gods all around. Uh, it was also pluralistic in the sense that there was this value kind of underlining them all saying, hey, you know what? We need to affirm all these different religions. We need to affirm all these different gods. And so the Roman philosophy on religion was very simply this. We do not care what kind of God you want to worship. 
We do not care which, what you do, where you worship, how you do it, any of those other kinds of things. The only thing you should not do is believe, think, or say that your God is the one true God. The only thing that you should not do is believe, think, or say that your God is the one true God. That may be divisive, culturally speaking. It also may lead to this thinking that says, hey, you know what? Rome's not really in charge. My God's the one true God, and he's actually in charge of my life. And so that was the one major sin of their day, uh, is, that, is that you actually believe that your God is true, that you actually believe the things that you say that you believe. So we don't care who you believe, what you, what you worship or what you do. Um, you know, as long as you bit of this, impose it on other people or anything like that. It's kind of a build-a-bear theology, if you will, right? I'm going to take a little bit of this. I'm going to take a little bit of this religion over here, some of this morality, some of this modern-day philosophy and thinking over here. I'm going to bring it all into one kind of a thing, uh, and that's how I'm going to practice my faith. Church, is this sounding familiar at all to any of the things that you see today, right? Are, are, we, are we identifying at all with some of this stuff? I mean, this is, not, this is one of the major sins of today, Correct. The major sin of today is that you actually, is what Jesus says when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We love Jesus' teaching, but this is the one thing that, hey, you can't actually follow that part of his teaching and be okay today. How dare you believe that he is the way, he is the truth, he is the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. Uh, we, we know what it's like to live in this culture where you've got so many different influences and so many different um, theologies coming in and playing into your worldview that it's difficult to maintain or to keep Jesus as first. I was listening to this TED Talk not long ago, and the speaker was talking about this tension that we see here culturally today. And here's what he said. He said, um, he's talking about the claim that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through, through him. And he says, what Jesus claims about himself, it seems to smack of arrogance, bigotry, and narrow-mindedness. In a world that elevates pluralism and tolerance is sacred, the belief that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, the only um, exclusive path to God, is a proverbial slap on the face to every other belief system. Um, a Catholic scholar, uh, pluralist scholar, Rosemary Radford Ruther, she calls, what, when Jesus says this, she says this is an example of absurd religious chauvinism. How dare Jesus say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except for me. That's just absurd. It's absurd and it's arrogant to believe that. Others come in and they say, hey, uh, this is a spiritual dictatorship that encourages smug superiority and unnecessary judgment for anyone who believes, hey, this is the one true God and I'm following him and that there's an objective sense of truth that I submit my life to him and all these different kinds of things, right? So you can see the difficulty of, of, of being a people that says, hey, you know what? Jesus is gonna be first in this kind of a cl climate. Why in the world would I want Jesus to be first in my life if I'm gonna be persecuted everywhere I go for believing that? that he actually is the one true God. Not only that, you see the tension here between, like, how do I follow Jesus here who says, um, if anyone's going to come after me, you must deny yourself, take up your cross daily to follow me. Or the Bible that says, hey, you should have no other gods before me. That's what Jesus says. And in following him, that's what I've got to do and follow. Meanwhile, culturally, we're saying, hey, how dare you um, hold on to anything that says I am the one true God. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Church, there's tension all over the place. It's some of the difficulty in saying, you know what, Jesus is actually functionally going to be first in my life. We know that he should be. We say that he is. I use on the plaque in my room, God first, family second, country third. Like we, we know the values, we know the right answers and stuff, but is he functioning as first place in your life? And so as we, before we get into the, really to the text today, like that's the question that I want to, that I want to throw at you. Like, is it possible, given the abundance of wealth, the abundance of comfort, the abundance of options, 
in addition to the number of philosophies and the way that we think about religion today and the cultural influence and the pressures that are around you today, is it possible that Jesus may not actually be on the throne of your life today? Is it possible that that may be a thing you know is the right answer, but functionally, he is not functioning, functioning his first place in your life today? I mean, I want you to think about 2019. I mean, you look back at 2019 and even maybe even the past decade, maybe as we're rolling into a brand new decade here, I, is it the case that he has actually functioned as first place in your life back then? Some of you are coming off of 2019 as a year you hope to forget. And you're looking back and you're saying, hey, you know what? I, I kind of hope this thing is beyond me. I hope it's past and I hope it's done away with. And, and you're kind of going, hey, uh, the, the good news is 2020 is a brand new year. Like, is it, Could it possibly be the case that he may not be trending up in your life today? I love what Tim Keller says about this. He says, Tim Keller's a pastor out in New York. He deals with a lot of young adults, college students. And he says, inevitably at the beginning or sometimes somewhere around Christmas time, he says, I'll have college students that come into my office and they'll say, uh, Pastor Keller, Pastor Keller, uh, you know, I don't feel as close to Jesus as I used to feel. And uh, they'll get into this conversation and he says, the question that I'm always going to ask him is, tell me about your relationships. Like what's new? What's different about your life now that wasn't a year ago or whatever it was? And he goes, who did you actually start sleeping with this past semester? And he goes, whenever I ask that probing question, who did you start sleeping with this past, this past semester? And he goes, about 90% of the time, there's always an answer. And he goes, the reality is you've got students that are coming from a church culture, a youth group culture that is heavily protected, where you're feeling close to Jesus, where he gets to function as number one. Now you're entering into this world that is full of options, that is full of opportunity, that is full of freedom, that is full of temptation, that is full of all these other kinds of things. And we begin engaging things which necessarily will stimmy your affection for the things of God. He says 90% of the time there is an answer to that kind of a question. Church, when 60% of our country acknowledges faith in God and identifies as a Christian, yet less than 18% have attended a worship service at any given time in the past six months, less than 12% have actually read their Bible one time by themselves in the past week, less than 18% have actually prayed, not in traffic on 635 or anything like that, but like actually prayed in a devotional capacity at any time in the past year, and less than 5% have actually shared their faith one time in the past year, like it's not necessarily a stretch to think that we are Colossi. And so that's the question I just want you to think about as you're, as you're getting into this text. Is it possible that I may have drunk the Kool-Aid? Is it possible that I may have been influenced in such a way and, and become so comfortable with a version of Christianity to where I can appease my motives and I can appease my resolutions and what I think is good and holy and and not be in a place where Jesus is first place in my life. It's why Paul writes this letter to the Colossians. There's a million things that are influencing their thing, and he's simply saying, hey, make sure that Jesus is first place in your life. And so I want to get into this thing, and I love how he begins, because this whole letter is written from prison, right? This is one of Paul's four prison epistles, uh, Colossians, Philemon, Philippians, Ephesians, the four prison epistles. And so in order to make this argument that Jesus should be first place in, his, in your life, he is actually doing it from a place of prison. 
and he's in prison simply because Jesus is first place in his life. He has not stopped preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's been offensive to the Roman authorities at that time for the reasons I just shared about a little while ago. And so they've thrown him in prison because he's saying, hey, you know what? Jesus Christ is the king of all kings. He is the Lord of all lords. He is first place in all things. He should be first place in your life. That's an offensive message. They've thrown him in the prison. Therefore, now he's writing this letter to the Colossians about that exact same message from this very place. And so I want to pick it up here in verse 9. Verse 9 is the pleasantries are all done. You're going to begin to see a little bit how he's praying for the church in Colossae. Here's what he says. He says, from the day we heard, meaning he and Timothy, uh, Timothy's his disciple, traveling companion, from the day we have heard about what God is doing in your church body, he says, we have not stopped praying for you asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you can walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints and light. Okay, so let me translate that because that is a really, really, really long run-on sentence right there, right? Like, you're going to notice about this, it's, it's not in the, like, Paul doesn't like a whole lot of punctuation or anything. It's not there in the original language. And so, uh, long, run-on sentence. But here's essentially what he's saying. Here's my prayer for you, church, that you would have spiritual wisdom and you'd have spiritual understanding. That's my prayer for you. I pray that this would be a year that you have spiritual wisdom and you have spiritual understanding. Meaning, my hope and my prayer for you is that this would be a year you're actually able to engage with the Lord Jesus Christ in such a way that you can discern what his will may look like in whatever he brings your way. What a beautiful way to begin the new year. He's hoping that, he's praying that. My hope and prayer is that these resolutions, these things that maybe you process through and you're thinking, hey, these are the things that he's called me into. I hope that they come true. I am praying that you would have spiritual wisdom and have spiritual understanding so that you can discern what God's will may look like in matters of gray where it's not necessarily black and white and very, very clear what it may look like in this instance right over here. What does it look like for me to love someone who's not easy to love? I, I need to know how to love. I know that I should because that's biblical, but God, what does that actually look like in this relationship over here? How do I love someone that I vehemently disagree with philosophically, theologically, and everything else? How do I love that person who does not want to be loved? Like, what does that actually look like? Do I take this job? Do I take this job over here? Do I say yes to the marriage proposal, or do I run as fast as I possibly can? How long do I hang in here? What does it look like for me to be strong? That's what he's saying. I hope and I pray, church, that this is a year that you, um, that you have spiritual wisdom and you have spiritual understanding. Now, here's why he says that. Verse 10, he's going to say this. He's going to say, so that you can walk in a manner that is worthy of the Lord Jesus Christ and pleasing to him. In other words, he's not praying and hoping that you have spiritual wisdom and understanding, simply that you can be on top of the world. Like the hope is not that you have all the right answers, that you know the right thing to do, that you know how to tell everybody else what the right thing to do is. My hope and prayer is that you have spiritual wisdom and understanding this year so that you're able to walk in such a way that is actually pleasing to the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, church, there is a way that you can walk that is not pleasing unto him. Even though his wrath has been satisfied through the shed blood of the lamb, there is a way that you and I can walk that is not glorifying unto him. And what Paul's saying here is my prayer for you, spiritual wisdom, spiritual understanding, that this would be a year and that you would be able to walk in a way that is worthy of the Lord Jesus Christ and pleasing unto him. Now, here's what that actually looks like. 
Verse 10, he's going to say uh, that these are going to be lives that are increasing in the knowledge of God, and these are lives that bear fruit in every single good work, right? That's what these kinds of lives do. They are increasing in the knowledge of God, and they bear fruit in every single good work. Um, it continues, and he says, these are lives that are strengthened with all power, not for the sake of pride again. It's not that you're going to be on top, that you're going to be able to control and manipulate other people, but that you be strengthened with all power. Why? So that you're able to endure with great patience and with great joy. In other words, when things are difficult around you, when they may not be going your way, that the Holy Spirit would do such a work in you that you've actually got strength to endure those trying times. And then he wraps it all up and he simply says that you would have four that are full of gratitude towards the one who qualified you to share in the fullness of his blessing. And so before Paul even gets into the argument uh, about why Jesus should be number one in your life, which is still to come in verse 13, 15, and, and furthermore right there, we can already begin to see the fruit uh, that is a byproduct of knowing Jesus first. Uh, that's what he's showing us, right? We can already begin to see the fruit that is a byproduct of Jesus being first place in your life. That's what he's saying. Uh, these are people, he's saying that you're going to be increasing in the knowledge of God uh, because he's actually first place in your life. And as a result of this increase of the knowledge of God, uh, you're going to bear fruit in every single good work that you do. In other words, you're not going to be keep running into, uh, you're not going to be keep running, in, running into dead ends everywhere you go. You're going to be praying and the works that you're doing, they're going to be producing fruit. They're going to be producing love and joy and peace in, in other people. When you share the gospel, people are going to be starting to say yes. Like you're going to have such divine insight and wisdom that God is going to use you in very timely places in other people's lives for the praise and glory of their name and for their mutual benefit. Like that's what he's saying. You're going to live a, a fruitful life. You're not just going to be running on the treadmill of life, uh, going nowhere, doing absolutely nothing. You're going to be producing spiritual fruit that's actually good. You're going to be producing those kinds of things. You're going to be strengthened with power. In other words, you're going to have the courage to do what you should do even when it's hard to do. That's what he's talking about with strength. You know, like that, that's that thing. Some of you have been something like that on your resolution list. I need courage this year. I need strength this year to say no to the things I know I need to say no to and to say yes to the things I know I need to be saying yes to. And what Paul's saying, like, like that's the fruit of this kind of a relationship and that's, that's what I'm hoping and praying for you, that you're gonna be strengthened with this kind of a power and then you're gonna be full of gratitude and joy. But church, like that's what it looks like to bear fruit. That's what it looks like to bear fruit. It's what the psalmist is talking about. We talked about it at the beginning of last semester when he says, how blessed is the man or woman who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. In other words, he enjoys spending time in God's word. He, he enjoys it. He delights in the law of the Lord. In his law, he meditates upon it day in and day out because he knows how, where life is to be found. He's gonna be like a tree, he says, that is firmly planted by streams of water and it yields its fruit in its season and its leaf never withers away and in whatever he does, he prospers. Church, like that's the picture that Paul is painting for us right here. That when Jesus Christ is first in your life and you are delighting in his word and you are meditating upon his word day in and day out, you are going to be like that tree that is firmly planted by streams of living water. But again, church, like it is all a byproduct of Jesus being first place in your life. It is all a byproduct of Jesus being first place in your life. Like you don't get the fruit without the roots. You don't become the tree without being firmly planted by streams of living water. And as I talk about this pursuit of, of knowing God well, I've got to acknowledge, like, I understand the tension that's here in this, in this room about the knowledge of God, right? Like, like, we know what that seminarian is like who has all the knowledge in the world, and we hate that person, right? 
Like, we know what that's like. We know what that person's like who, who's got all the answers and is able to correct everybody's theology and has no love for the things of God, no love for his people whatsoever. Isn't that their problem? That they know the things of God too well? I mean, aren't we a little afraid? Like, I understand the tension here that uh, doesn't the Bible say that knowledge puffs up? I mean, there's a way that I can know the things of God where I become so full of myself, so arrogant that I'm not a loving person, I'm not a fruitful person, I don't even look like Jesus whatsoever. Isn't that the problem? Wasn't that the problem with the Pharisees? Right, these people that had the, essentially the Torah memorized, these religious leaders back in Jesus' day, the ones who taught the word of God to everyone else, yet these are the people that Jesus held his harshest rebuke for. Wasn't their problem that they studied a little too much? Church, like, that's not the problem that's going on with the Pharisees. It's not the problem with the seminarian. Like, Paul's going to be very clear. Romans chapter 10, their problem was that they had a zeal that was not according to the knowledge of God. So Paul's saying, Paul would know. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. That's what, who he was. Like, it's not necessarily one does not follow another. If you pursue knowledge, you necessarily become a Pharisee. He's going to say their problem was that they had a zeal for power that was not according to the knowledge of God. He goes on in verse 3 and he says, They were ignorant of the righteousness of God, so they sought to establish their own sense of righteousness instead of submitting to their God's righteousness themselves. In other words, church, like their problem wasn't knowledge, their problem was self-righteousness. Their problem was that they used God's word, they used religion, they used what the things that they knew, they, that, that they know, in order to create a brand new sense of righteousness instead of submitting to the righteousness which God provided for us through the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so if you are concerned about being so filled with knowledge that you become puffy, the solution to that problem is not to run from knowing the things of God or knowing God even more intimately. The solution to that kind of a problem is to to know the things of God to the point that you know there is grace to be found when you come to him, you confess your sins before him, you repent of that sin, and you actually receive the grace uh, of his healing, and you, and you find the rest is there in, um, in his righteousness, which he's gifted, gifted to us in Jesus Christ. Like church, it all begins there in the knowledge of God. It all begins in what we know is true about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Church, like you cannot have the fruit of being in relationship with him without these deep roots. You cannot be that tree without being firmly planted by streams of living water. All the different things that are really behind the resolutions for me to vote out and we scripted out for 2020 this past year, like all those different things, like what it's actually going to take for me to feel satisfied this year, like what it's going to actually take for me to feel like I'm a success or to feel like I'm good enough for God or for my spouse or for my kids or culturally speaking for my friends or for my boss, any of those kinds of things that I feel like it's gonna take for me to be good enough, like all those different things are simply the fruit of the right pursuit. Like that's what he produces in us when we are pursuing him. Like everything that you need to turn your marriage around this next year for it to be a different marriage than it was in 2019 or 2010 through 2018 or any of those kinds of things, like it's all right here. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. All of it's the fruit of the right pursuit. It's what God produces inside you and me to become the kind of people we need to be for the praise and for the glory of his name, church. Like the wisdom that you're longing for this next year. It's all the fruit of the right pursuit. The, with, the courage that you're longing for, that you're asking for, that you're hoping for, it's all the fruit of the right pursuit. Like it's all right there, the, the, the meaning that you're looking for, whatever like your word may be for this next year, like all of it's the fruit of the right pursuit. All of it's the byproduct of him being first and actually believing the things that he says about who you are and what he's created you to do. 
or about where to find peace in incredibly trying situations, or about how to avoid temptation and to be able to walk in the light so that 2020 isn't a year that you keep walking in the same path of destruction that you've been walking in for so many years. Like it's all there, it's all the fruit of the right pursuit. And so Paul says, yeah, I want that for you, church. I'm praying that for you. Like I want you to have that spiritual wisdom. I want you to have that spiritual understanding. I want you to have that strength. I want you to have that joy and that gratitude, those, di- those deepest longings of your heart, which God has put inside of you. I want you to have those things. But don't forget that all those things are simply the fruit of the right pursuit. There's one way to find them, and it's not in some of the ways that we're going. A few weeks back, I was, had an opportunity to go visit another church in town, and like I've told you many, many times, I like doing that when I'm not in the pulpit because it's good to be reminded of, of how much bigger God is than us, right, and than me. And it's good to be reminded that God's working in so many churches around DFW, all around the world. It's not just here at DBC or any of these things. And I love going and doing that. And so I went to go visit this church. And I love one of the stories he, one of the, 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 the guest preacher that day was sharing. And he was talking about the difficulty of the past year in his life. Evidently, 2019 was a year from hell, essentially, for him and for his family. It began with his wife having a lot of pain in one of her legs. Um, it was very much an annoyance. It was very uncomfortable. Doctor, they didn't think it was a huge deal. Nevertheless, they went into the doctor's office to go get it checked out. Uh, doctor comes back at, out and he says, yeah, it's actually a much bigger deal than we thought it was. You've got about a 50% chance of survival in this, this tumor that's in your leg. And if you actually do survive this, then the reality is we're most likely going to have to amputate your leg, your hip, and your pelvis. Now, keep in mind, this is a young pastor uh, with three young kids in elementary school and younger than that. And so he just went on and he just said, look, it was a devastating diagnosis. We were crushed and destroyed. We thought it was just very uncomfortable. There was a little bit of pain. And now we're talking about life and death. And even if you live, then, hey, you're not going to have a leg and, and all these other kinds of things. And so he goes, we, we just came back and we wept after that. We wept. We told our group. We told our, the, the church and everything. And everybody came around and they prayed for us. And he came back and he said, you know, I, 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 by God's grace and by his mercy, we come back for the next doctor's appointment. And, and guess what? It's not the same diagnosis. And he goes, I don't know if it was a bad diagnosis or if God just came in and he healed in the middle of that time. I choose to believe that he, we know that he's a God who heals. But he comes back and he says, we went in the doctor's appointment. And all of a sudden the doctor comes out and he says, hey, guess what? I'm not seeing the same thing anymore. Like that sickness that I thought was there that we were, gonna have, we're not going to have to amputate. You do have a tumor there. Um, it is not as serious. Your life is not on the line. We're not going to have to amputate or any of the, uh, these other things. We're going to have to treat it, and it's going to be very uncomfortable, but it's not nearly as big of a deal. And so he goes in, and he's talking about the pain and difficulty this past year uh, for his wife, who was living in essentially level eight pain um, for an entire year. And, uh, and he says, you know, she had three natural births and says, natural birth, that's a level 10 pain. And the way she described her pain all throughout the year was a level eight right next to that. And so he says it was, a, it was a horrific year for her. Um, it was a horrific year for the kids. The kids didn't have her attention. She was gone. She was, she was sick. She wasn't able to do anything pretty much entire year. She wasn't around as much. And, and, and all of her investment there, like that was just not, it was not available anymore. And he goes, it was a tough year for me. I'm playing dad and father and, and uh, you know, homemaker and provider and all the different roles that are associated there. And he says it was a horrific year for me. And, of course, the question that everybody had for him is like, how in the world did you make it through this past year? Like, how in the world are you up here preaching about the goodness of God after the course of this past year? 
And I love what he said in response to that question, but he said, you know, um, he goes on and he says, uh, this is a year that we've been forced to essentially apply everything that we've known about God for so many years. This is a year that we have been forced to apply everything that we've learned about God for so many years. And he goes, we were just feeding on years and years of theology now being applied in these dark times of of, of, of this past year. And he goes and what he talks about how seasons of difficulty, they're not the best time to start learning about who God is and what he could be doing in your life. And he says, there's never a bad time to start doing that. So if that's where you are, like, it's never a bad time to start doing that. It's just not ideal because seasons of difficulty, he says, are the time that you want to press in and you want to be applying everything that you've been learning about him for years. Isn't that good? Like this is the time that all that knowledge about the goodness of God, all that knowledge about his power to heal, all that ability to know with confidence that he is a God who provides the peace which surpasses all understanding, all of that ability to, 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 just to pull from knowing um, that he's a God who provides when it feels like there's no way out of this thing. There's no, we don't know what these things are to do. He goes on and he, uh, he quotes one of the guys in his church, one of the um, one of the other pastors on staff, he says this. He says, we shout doctrine in the light so that we're able to whisper it when we're in the dark. And he goes, I held on to that all year long. We shout doctrine in the light so that we're able to whisper it in the, do- in, in the darkness. In other words, we're, we pull from in these seasons of high times. Everybody's healthy. Everybody's good. We're flourishing in this, this season. Those are the times to shout doctrine so that when those seasons of darkness come, we're able to whisper those things and reminders of the hope during those seasons. So he just goes on. And he says story after story of how God met us in the middle of this trying time with hope. We didn't know what to do, and God gave us wisdom to know what to do. We didn't know exactly how we would be able to endure. God came, and he gave us the strength to endure. And it's exactly what we see Paul praying for right here, church. I hope and pray this is a year you have that spiritual understanding. I hope and pray this is a year you have that courage. You have that strength. I hope and pray that this is a year you have that ability to discern what it is God's calling you to do. But make no mistake, church, all of those things are simply the fruit of the right pursuit. So don't forget to lean in and to make him first and to pursue the knowledge of God above all other things. He continues on and I love what he's doing here because this is how he prays for the church, but it's not his main point. He gets into the main point beginning here in verse 13. Here's what he says. He says, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and he's transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. In other words, here's how I'm praying for you. I want you to have all these different kinds of things. Here's what that actually looks like over here. Uh, But here's the main bulk of it. He just starts preaching the gospel. He says, you want to know why Jesus should be first in your life? Here's why. Uh, This is what he's done. He's delivered you from the domain of darkness and he's transferred you to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. In other words, like he just starts going straight gospel right here saying, you want to know, this is why he should be first place in your life. This is who he is. The God who was first place in all things came and initiated on our behalf so that we could be transferred from the kingdom of gospel into the kingdom of his beloved son. That's what he's done on our behalf. And he's just going straight gospel. That's why, like, how in the world can he not be first in your life? When you reflect on everything that he's done on your behalf, that's, that's the heartbeat of Paul in this text. It reminds me of probably I was about six or seven years old at the time. And by the way, I'm just going to say this. Like, if you ever have a chance to host any missionaries in your home, I heavily want to encourage you to do that. Uh, my parents did this. I was a young kid at the time, and we were hosting these missionaries in from, uh, uh, they were somewhere in Africa. They were named the Vintons were the name, and, um, 
And so they were in our home having dinner with their family. It was probably about six or seven years old. And he's just telling us these missionary stories of what it's like to live over there, the type of ministry that he's engaged in, one difficult story after another, a lot of persecution going on in the ministry and things like that. And I remember asking him, I was just saying, like, why do you do all that? It doesn't sound like a whole lot of fun. Like, why would you do all those different kinds of things? And I'll never forget what he did. He just looked at me and he, grabbed, he picked up his Bible and he just lifted it up and he said, I believe that every single word of this book is true. Every single word of this book is true. That is why we do the things that we do. I remember looking at that just going like, wow, I've never forgotten that day. It's exactly what Paul's saying right here. Like, why should Jesus be first place in your, in your life? Like, I look at the things that he's done. He's transferred you from the kingdom of darkness and brought you into the kingdom of his beloved son. He says in verse 18, he is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation, which simply means that the incarnation of Jesus Christ, it was the pinnacle of creation. It's not that he was literally physically created by God at some point in the past, but the, pin but the pinnacle of creation is the incarnation of the birth of Jesus Christ. The reason we know that is 16 is going to say, by him, meaning by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him, and also all things were created for him. In other words, church, like Jesus wasn't, being the, wasn't the one being created. Jesus was the one that was there in the very beginning doing all the creating. He was in perfect unity with the Father, with the Holy Spirit, speaking things into being. And he was there in the beginning, and through him all things were created. And not only that, but all things were created also for him. I was trying to explain this concept to Caleb earlier in the week. It never really goes well, but I always try because I'm a pastor, and I'm like, you know, I think a six-year-old can understand these things. And so it doesn't work out great, but I'm trying to explain to him. I'm like, buddy, your life was created for the glory of God. I'm like, you, you have to understand this. Your life is not for me. You don't owe me anything. You don't live for me. You don't live for my happiness. You don't live for my joy. You don't do, like, your, your life was not created for me. Your life was not created for mommy. Your life was not created for either. Life was for Nana or Papa or your friends or your job or even for yourself. Your life was given to you by God, and it was given to you by God for him. Like your life was for the praise and for the glory of his name. It's why we do the different things that we do. It's why we go and we have these stories and, and host different things and, and be generous and, and serve the church and, and all these different. It's why we do what we do is because our lives are for his praise and for his glory. It didn't exactly land, but, you know, it was a great work, you know, pre-sermon stuff there. I mean, it's exactly what Paul's saying for us right here. Like how in the world can he not be first place in your life? Like this is what he's done for us. All things were created through him and for him as well. He is before all things. And in him, church, like all things hold together. Have you ever thought about uh, just the, the, the magnificence of this idea? That all things are, were created through him and for him. And in him, all things hold together. Not much of a science guy. I was reading this article this past week. And uh, I was a speech communication major. So that means I had like no science. But anyway. Um, I was reading this article that was talking about how physicists are just, they're stumped at how atoms are able to hold together. They don't understand how this whole thing happens. It says, evidently, the nucleus of an atom has a bunch of positively charged protons. I don't know anything about atoms, but I know about magnets, positively charged magnets. They don't attract, they repel. It's kind of the same concept there. And so they go on, and the article sitting there is going, like, we don't know how these things hold together. It doesn't make any sense. It says something incredibly strong, invisible, and mysterious is able to still hold it all together. 
Physicists, we don't have a name for this mysterious force, and so we simply refer to, for, refer to it as the stronger force. Like, church, what's he talking about right there? I guess it's Star Wars Episode 10, right? Like, is, that, like, is that what we're talking about? He's, he's talking about the one who created all things, the one who's before all things, is the exact same one who holds all things together. He continues and he says, he is the head of the body, the church. In other words, like, I'm not the head of this thing. The elders are not the head of this thing. The staff, we're not the head of this thing. Like, he's the head of the body. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent or first place in everything. Church, like, that's what it means, that he is the one who surpasses all other things and that he's the one who is first and foremost in your life. Because in Jesus Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Meaning in Christ, God chose to take on flesh and to condescend from heaven, fully God and fully man. And then he says, through him, Jesus reconciled all things to himself, whether on earth or in heaven. How? By making peace for us through the blood of his cross. And so Paul just wraps it up and he simply says, like, you who were once alienated from God, you who are hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, he's now reconciled you and he's brought you back home. Like, how can he not be first place in your life? You were hostile to him. You were alienated. Even the religious people in here, the ones who were like saved in, in diapers, like the ones who did not have that, that crazy rebellious time in college or young adult years or whatever it may be, like even you were lost and dead in your sins, alienated from God, hostile in mind, and in the middle of that place, God in his infinite love sent his one and only son, Jesus, to come and to take on flesh, fully God and fully man, and to live the sinless life that you and I could not live. And he willingly went to the cross and he suffered, he bled, and he died. And three days later, he conquered the grave and he walked out of that tomb alive and he offered you and me this free gift of eternal life to any and all who would simply come to him in genuine faith. How in the world can he not be first place in your life? The one who was first, the one who was there in the beginning, the one who created it all, the one who is before all things, the one who holds all things together, initiated first with you, that you and I can have peace with him. So the question that he leaves us with at the end of this chapter is very, very simply this. Is that enough for him to be first in your life? Today, tomorrow, this year, and for the years to come. I'll never forget one of my favorite stories. Um, in seminary, there's a professor named Ramesh Richard. He brought in all these pastors from around the world year after year to come and to share their testimonies with us. He wanted Dallas pastors to understand what God was doing everywhere else in the world. And um, and he brought him here, and he brought this one guy up to the front, and he said, I want you to share your story, and I want you to tell us all why it is that you preach the gospel today. And this guy gets up there, and he tells the story of being from a small Hindu village in South India. Um, it was a very militant Hindu village. It was very small, maybe only 250 families there. It wasn't a big deal. Um, he had heard about things of Jesus because Hindus have a lot of affection for a lot of many different gods. Uh, didn't really know Jesus, and he started to have these dreams like a lot of people do. Um, it was, uh, he says, knowing now, I think it was Jesus, but he started having these dreams about Jesus. And so he started praying and saying, okay, God, if this is who you are, I want to know who you really are. And so he says, one day there was a missionary that came to town and he came with the Jesus film and he came and he tried to play it for the entire village. The elders of the village, they got very hostile. Uh, they threw rocks at him. They ran him out of the city. They didn't want that video being played. But he goes, all night long, I wasn't able to sleep. I was just, I was, all I could think about what was on that video so he goes, the next night I snuck away when everybody was sleeping. 
I went to the town where I knew the missionary was staying, and I went and I found that guy, and I made him show me that video. And he goes, as I watched that video, I just wept as I thought about the fact that God took on flesh, and he went to the cross for me that I could have life with him. And he goes, he kept weeping at the reality and just seeing God taking on flesh and what we did to him so that he could have peace with us, we could have peace with him. And he goes, I just started weeping, and I told that missionary right then and there, I wanted to be with Jesus, I was giving him my life, the whole thing. And he goes, the missionary did something I wasn't expecting. The missionary says, hey, that's fantastic. I'm, I'm grateful and I'm so glad to hear that you want to say yes to Jesus. And I want you to think about this. Have you thought about what it's going to cost you to follow him? I want you to think about the fact that when you go back and you tell your family they're going to throw rocks at you, they're going to persecute you, you're going to be kicked out of the family and you're essentially going to be homeless as a result of this whole thing. Do you still want to follow him? Really think about the cost. And he thought about it for a few minutes, and he, just, he was looking down, and he's just going, I, he was considering everything that, he, that was going on. And he looked back up, and he said, tell me this, is everything that you told me true? Are you lying to me? And he says, no, I'm not lying to you. It's right here in God's word. This is God's word given to you. And he said, all I know is if my God did that for me, how in the world can I say no to him? I'm in. I'm in. And that man, I'll never forget what he's standing in front of the whole class that day. He goes, that is why I preach this gospel. That God who is before all things, the one who was first, initiated with, with, with us first that we could have peace with him. And so church, here it is. My hope and prayer is much like Paul's today. And pray that 2020 is a year you find spiritual wisdom. I hope and pray that you are able to find that courage that you're hoping for. You're able to find that strength that you're looking for. I hope and pray that all of those different things, all the different fruits that we long for and that are, that are deep inside of our hearts, I hope and pray that they would come real. But I hope and pray that 2020 would be a very different year for you and for me. That this would be a year that Jesus would actually ascend. And that it wouldn't just be lip service. That it wouldn't just be something that, hey, hey, I know, yeah, God first in my life. Yeah, 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 I got that. That this would be a different year. That he would actually ascend in our affections. That he would actually come to take first place in every bit of your life.